At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For almost a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. And we get to hear from you. This week, I'm talking with Lara Lee, chef and author of the new Indonesian cookbook, Coconut and Sambal. Our Genius Recipe on Food 52 today is Lara's crispy soy and ginger roast potatoes, in which she helps us pull off exceptionally crisp-edged, creamy-centered roast potatoes and then toss them with stir-fried scallions, ginger, and garlic, and then douse it all in half a cup of soy sauce and rice vinegar. I had never seen a roasted potato dish like this before, and I had to know. Would all that crispiness that we had fought for hold up under all that soy dressing? And I can tell you, it very much does. Thanks to Lara's well-tested technique of quickly simmering big chunks of potato, peels and all, then draining and shaking them up in a pot to rough up their edges, then roasting them hard in a sizzling garlic oil. And it's made for some of the most memorable dinners I've had in a very long time. Usually very late at night with my husband's signature aggressively fried eggs to swipe through any extra dressing that spilled off onto the plate. The recipe and video for how to make Lara's potatoes are all on Food52 today, but here you'll get to hear more about the secret cooking society in East Java where she was first invited to taste a local version, what she discovered walking into her grandma's home in Indonesia for the first time, and how she recruited her cooking mentor back home in London. And at the end of the episode, we hear from you about a few more completely different crispy potato tricks which are never unwelcome. But I am getting ahead of myself. Here is Lara to tell you about why these potatoes deserve to be a main dish. Hi, Lara. Kristen, hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm well, how are you? I'm so good. It is just so great to speak to you. <laughs> I'm super excited. Well, would you please um, just start off by telling us the story behind this recipe? You mean these potatoes? <laughs> Why, this is just a little something I whipped up earlier, you know. So I traveled to this area uh, of Indonesia called uh, Surabaya. It's a city in East Java. And I was really lucky to meet with this secret society of women who were a cooking club. And it's invite only because they didn't want, you know, their cousins or aunties or friends of friends to join. They only wanted really good home cooks to be part of this cooking society. And this dish is originally a dish called sambal goreng kentang, which is essentially fried potatoes. This dish is actually a main. It's not a side. It's eaten with rice. And so I think what I wanted to achieve when I wrote the recipe is to like, let's think about this potato as this amazing thing that you could actually eat as a main on its own. Now, don't get me wrong. I eat this with like a roast, you know, pork belly, of course. But, you know, 
You can eat it as a main with a bit of sambal on the side, with a bit of fried rice. I mean, it can become its own thing. So I think in that way, people will rethink how we can celebrate vegetables. And I find vegetables and so do Indonesians to be such an exciting, exciting, um, you know, part of the food world. Mm. So the original dish is served with liver or gizzards and a bean called the stink bean. It's known as pete bean in Indonesia. And so when I came back to uh, London to test the recipes, I kind of realized that, um, you know, liver and gizzards is not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, stink bean is very hard to find. Um, but what, and also not everyone wants to deep fry a potato in their kitchen. Um, some people are a bit, you know, nervous with deep frying. So I thought everyone can roast a potato in the oven. Everyone can achieve a crispy potato in the oven. And I basically used Indonesian aromatics, Indonesian ingredients. So that the heart of Indonesia is in the dish is just repurposed for a domestic kitchen. Uh, you know, and I think that works really well. But in terms of how it's going to change how people roast the potato, I'm just staring at the potatoes because they're beckoning me to eat them. Um, you know, I think it's all about, you know, everyone's got their way to roast the perfect potato. But for me, it's all about roughing up the edges, you know, giving it a good exfoliate all around that kind of potato when it's parboiled. So the hot oil can penetrate it and it can become a crispy and golden thing. And I think it kind of emulates that deep fried potato that I tasted in East Java. This is the Genius Recipe Tapes. We'll be right back. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. And I know in the intro to your new book, Coconut and Sambal, you wrote about walking into your grandmother's kitchen for the first time as an adult and noticing how similar you two are. Could you just speak a little bit about mm. that? Yes. Yeah, so when I finally did visit Indonesia, it was as a young adult. So I think I was 20 or 21 years old. And um, and we went to, to a city called Kupang. And it's where my grandmother um, you know, lived her most of her life. My grandmother's house is vacated, but still standing in the old town because my one of my aunties had lived in there for a while. And so we went there as a family, really to kind of look through, you know, some of her old things and to get, kind of get a feel of, you know, who she was. And what was amazing going into that house, even though it was vacated, it was still full of all of her possessions and the kitchen was every shade of blue imaginable, this kind of blue hose, this blue sink, a blue bucket on the floor, blue tiles, blue stair rail. Her bedroom was lime green with like a bright electric pink chicken statue and a Jesus statue and a cat statue and all of these kind of amazing, you know, trinkets that she'd collected from around the world. And the walls were crumbling 
you know, a bright purple hallway, you know, splashes of yellow on the roof. And it, it, I, I am someone who lives for color. I think I, I, I wear a lot of colorful clothes. Our home is colorful. My, my poor son is dressed in like a rainbow most days. <laughs> you know, when I walked into her home for the first time, I, I realized how much we had in common and how much we share in terms of our passions, our passion for color, our passion for good food, our passion for our, our family. And, you know, that was a really special moment because, I, you know, I, I kind of grieving the loss of her as an, as an adult, you know, I've been able to find a lot of comfort in, in those similarities and, and really realizing that, you know, um, I can know her and get to know her again through all of these memories that we have of her. And, and, and that's been really special and really beautiful to, to kind of discover. And through her handwritten recipes, too. That was an incredible discovery, it sounds like. Yes, yes. When I was on kind of this mission to recreate my grandmother's food and recreate her recipes, what we did find in this house in Kupang were two very old, very yellowed, handwritten recipe books uh, written in Bahasa Indonesian that my grandmother had recorded over the years. And it's a very unusual discovery because in Indonesia, there is an oral tradition of passing recipes down between the generations. So recipes are shown and demonstrated and spoken about, but there's not a tradition of writing things down. So for my grandma to have done this was a very rare thing. And the reason she did that was because she was widowed at the age of 36 and had four children and needed a way to support herself. So she learned, really taught herself to cook Indonesian baked goods, Indonesian cakes, and opened a bakery at the bottom of her home. And so because she had this bakery, she had some staff to help her. And so she needed to write these recipes down in order to be able to, you know, kind of preserve that knowledge. So I was so lucky to find those. And that was a really helpful guide in terms of shaping what my collection of her recipes would be and ultimately what you kind of see in the book as well. But, you know, she had a funny kind of way. I mean, this is the Indonesian way of um, describing recipes. It's not prescriptive. Everything's very intuitive. So she might write a handful of chilies and a thumbful of ginger and a bowlful of, you know, green beans or whatever it might be. And so obviously trying to transcribe that and translate that into, um, a, you know, into a cookbook, it, you know, it did take a lot of tweaking and testing and talking to my aunties and figuring out what did she mean when she said, you know, this kind of measurement, a cup full is, is her cup the way that we think of a cup or is it a, is it a mug for her? And, you know, that, that, those kind of questions. Was that hard for you? Was that challenging to decide where to make changes and where to stay true to the original recipes as you cooked them and tasted them in Indonesia? It was something that I think I spent a lot of time thinking about and worrying about because there's a very delicate balance between um, obviously recreating a very authentic cookbook versus something that has a mix of both, which is what I wanted. I wanted uh, I wanted to show some recipes that were very true to the original that couldn't deviate at all. Rendang would be an example of that. Uh, Rendang is a caramelized beef curry. Uh, Actually, well, it's not a curry. (laughs) That's the thing. So, uh, so it's it's essentially, it, it starts off as a stew with a lot of coconut milk, a really gorgeous spice paste, which has, you know, chilies and garlic and shallots and bruised lemongrass and macroot lime leaf and 
you know, uh, bay leaf and so on. And then it simmers over about three hours uh, until the beef is tender. And then the coconut oil has split from the coconut milk. And then the chunks of beef begin to fry in the oil. It's incredible. Of that coconut milk until all that is left is a sediment of that spice paste that has essentially browned the beef. And it is probably my favorite meal on earth. It is just to die for. But um, I think some, some recipes out there uh, in the ether, um, you know, have their rendang a little bit saucier, which is therefore a more of a curry style of thinking of a rendang, um, which would be called a kalio. So that's the, the name of the, of it when it has more sauce, but you know, you, you kind of have to follow it to the point where the, the cubes of beef are blackened and that there is no sauce left really, because that is, that is how it is eaten in West Sumatra. Um, and that is how it tastes the best really. So, so that's an example where like that technique, you know, I wanted to, it's, it's a three to three and a half, even sometimes four hour process, but I, I, you know, it needs that to become what, what the definition of the dish is, which is rendang. So that's an example where, um, I didn't want to deviate from the recipe and I, and I'm glad I didn't, but there are some recipes like, uh, there's a recipe in the book called Bobby Gooling which is um, essentially in Indonesia, it's a, it's a Balinese dish and it is a baby pig that is slaughtered in the morning at about four or 5 a.m. rubbed with this beautiful Balinese spice paste, which has galangal, you know, again, chilies, garlic, shallots, um, kensher, turmeric, quite a few different uh, ingredients, you know, marinated inside and out. And then it is turned by hand for five hours over the burning branches of the coffee tree. And what results is this gorgeous, crispy pig skin, you know, gorgeous, tender flesh, full of flavor, so decadent and wonderful and luxurious to eat. But obviously that's something that is just impossible to recreate. But I wanted to uh, adapt it and do an inspired, you know, version. So for me, that was, you know, getting a pork belly, um, I tested it about eight times to kind of get it as close to that memory as possible as I had of that baby pig on the skewer. And it's rubbed in that Balinese spice paste, but obviously it's not, you know, over the burning branches of the coffee tree. But, you know, but but the I think the integrity is still there. And then um, I think one of my favorite memories from when I was little was uh, watching her make. So my grandmother would make gado gado because she would always... Uh, so gado gado is a cooked vegetable salad with peanut sauce kind of drizzled all on top of it and eaten with like uh, karupuk crackers, which is a really delicious, crunchy Indonesian cracker. And she would always adorn the gado gado platter with these carved vegetables. So she would whittle, you know, flowers out of carrots and cucumbers and tomatoes. And as a little girl, there could be nothing more exciting than someone turning a vegetable, which not many kids like to eat, into a flower. Oh yes, give me that vegetable. I shall eat that carrot now. So yeah, and then I would try to copy her with with blue tack and try and make the flowers myself. And she would teach me. And so I have really lovely memories of Gado Gado because watching her do that, like there was nothing better. I think you could sort of recreate the carrot flowers at this point or or do you have plans to when um jonah is old enough to appreciate them as much as you did considering that you know i spent like three years writing this cookbook i have not yet attempted to whittle a carrot flower 
I mean, what was I thinking? That should, there should have been a whole chapter devoted to that. But I think actually that's maybe what I'm going to do to, to calm myself. You know, some people you buy coloring in books or some people knit. Maybe I'm going to whittle some carrot flowers. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> I would actually also love to hear more about your relationship with Sri Owen, who has been your mentor on this project. How did you first encounter her work? And could you tell us some of the most memorable things you learned from working with her? Oh, Sri Owen has just been, yeah, the most important figure, uh, aside from my grandmother, in terms of my culinary journey. And it's really funny, funny actually, because Food 52 wrote an article um, about Sri Owen, I think maybe four years ago or so. Uh, and it was about Sri. It was a really wonderful uh, interview with her about her life and about this kind of task that she has to kind of carry on the legacy of Indonesian food, to teach people about Indonesian food. And so I was on this kind of mission and journey to, you know, reconnect with my heritage. Um, I'd moved to London, obviously, and so I felt very far away from my dad, my parents, from my from my aunties, and from, you know, my access to Indonesian culture was kind of, I guess, abruptly stopped when I moved to London because uh, there's a very small Indonesian community here and not many Indonesian restaurants. So I read in this article that, you know, Sri Owen lived in Wimbledon in London, <laughs> which I didn't actually know because, I you know, I knew of her. I knew of her books, um, but I didn't realize that she lived in the same city as me. And I suddenly had this kind of awakening that actually, you know, I can perhaps contact her and see if we could meet because I want to write this cookbook and I've got this idea and I would love to get some guidance from her. Uh, I stalked her quite heavily because there was no contact details on the, you know, in a, in a very obvious place, but maybe in the seventh or eighth blog post I saw there was like, you know, email me at Shrio and, you know, to any questions. And so I emailed her and I emailed her my book idea and the journey I'd been on so far. And she emailed back within a few hours saying, what are you doing on Saturday? Would you like to come to my house and meet me? And um, which was completely unexpected. You know, I, I just was floored by that. And uh, and so I, I turned up to her house on a Saturday at 10 a.m. and rang the doorbell. And this little four foot ten woman answers the door and says, hello, dear, and invites me upstairs, pops an apron on my head, tells me to wash my hands, and then says, okay, we've got 12 people coming over for lunch in three hours, and we're going to cook an Indonesian feast together. And so we did that, and it was magic. We just had this incredible energy together in the kitchen. Um, obviously, at, at that time, so that was... Um, you know, just over three years ago now, uh, you know, sh she was 82 then, but, you know, a little bit frail, uh, not as fast as she perhaps had been in the past. So suddenly she had this very enthusiastic, you know, person in her kitchen who was like, what do you want? What do you need me to chop? I will wash up everything. I'm going to do it all. I'm so grateful to be here. And, um, and we had a blast. And after that, that, that lunch, she said to me, you know, if you want uh, me as your teacher, I'm really happy for us to meet, you know, every week and we'll cook together and I'll invite some friends over and um, and I'll teach you everything I know. And, and she kind of said that she'd been waiting for someone who, you know, who had a connection to Indonesia, but that, that knew how to cook, that knew how to write. She was waiting for someone like that to come along to pass her knowledge down to. And so it was this kind of amazing moment in time 
where we both, I think, we both really needed each other as well because I think, you know, for her uh, getting older, you know, it was, it was harder to host and she is just someone who, you know, she is the most wonderful host, the most wonderful cook and has just the most incredible recipes. So I think for her to have someone to help her to do that, to continue to be, to being that, you know, generous, hospitable host, which is so very Indonesian of her. And for, you know, for me, I, I got to learn from the, this master of Indonesian cookery. Um, you know, it couldn't, it couldn't have been better. And, and this beautiful friendship blossomed for both of us. And, uh, and you know, we, we're still very much in contact, you know, to this day. We see each other. Well, because of COVID, it's a bit challenging. Uh, she's now in a care home. So they have quite a lot of rules on when you can and can't visit someone, um, depending on the number of COVID cases. Um, but I send her care packages all the time. So, uh, I send her like, I, I like, like I'll make sambal, I'll freeze it. I'll bubble wrap it. I'll like put it in the post, the 24 hour post, and it will get to her by the time it gets to her, it's defrosted. Um, or when I do visit, I bring a big box of like, you know, there might be some frozen rendang or there might be, you know, um, you know, some nasi goreng or, you know, lots of different treats for her to eat. Uh, cause you know, she's got a very kind of limited kitchen now in her care home. And, um, and I still go to her for advice and questions about Indonesian cookery. So we're still very much student and teacher, <laughs> but she's, she's wonderful. She's so wonderful. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad you were able to keep in touch with her. I was, I was worrying about that as you were describing your relationship and, and where we are all now in the world. And if it's possible, are you able to sort of think of the most memorable things you've learned from her, whether it's about cooking or about writing a cookbook or anything you know, she, really? She's had such an incredible career because um, like she's cooked with Raymond Blanc and she knows Gordon Ramsay and, you know, she kind of knows everyone. So um, I kind of, you know, came into her kitchen uh, a, a little bit of a... Uh, you know, <laughs> storm in a teacup as in I'm a little bit of a messy cook. <laughs> so actually one of, you know, I mean, this is kind of like uh chefing 101, but just, you know, in terms of just like cooking neat and tidy, I think that's one of the main things that she was kind of concerned about when she met me. But apart from that, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think what, what she also taught me was what I what I loved about meeting her was she has a thermomix I mean she's a very technologically savvy lady and um you know in Indonesia you're grinding uh spice paste you know slightly backbreaking work and she's like Lara Lara let's put it in the thermomix and you know it's it's kind of (laughs) I felt like she it gave me permission to in my book when I'm like saying you know chuck your ingredients in the food processor to make your spice paste you know I I know that things do taste better when you grind them by hand well what what I think she taught me was it gave me permission to to use and take a few shortcuts here and there uh which you know to achieve you know a very similar outcome sometimes she would cook you know with six chilies to make her satay sauce uh, to make her peanut sauce and other times she would cook with three and it depends on the size of the chilies which type of chilies you're using and and I think it's kind of just learning to not be so prescriptive when you think of a recipe obviously in a cookbook you have to write exactly exact quantities but when I watched her cook it was kind of amazing to remind myself that you know always be tasting yeah I think I think she kind of taught me everything from the basics to the to the very far advances of of Indonesian cookery All right, and here are a few more crispy potato tricks from you. 
Hi, my name is Rachel Teachman and I'm in Houston, Texas. So when I go somewhere and I see a shredded laka, whether it's at someone's house or a restaurant, I'm always kind of like, that's not really a laka. That's not what I'm used to. And you know, it gets a little bit hash brownie seeming. I grew up eating the pureed version. It just makes like a smoother pancake and easier to put toppings on and, you know, a nice mouthfeel, kind of easier to control in the pan. However, my husband and now one of my sons really like the shredded kind. Of course, any fried potato is delicious, but um, I'm still gonna go with the pureed laka. Hi, my name is Kayla and I live in Redondo Beach, California. My favorite way to enjoy potatoes is the smash and crisp method. I actually learned this technique in Chrissy Teigen's second cookbook and it was a game changer. You basically steam your potatoes of choice. I personally love baby red potatoes. And using the bottom of a shot glass, you smash them onto a baking pan seasoned to your preference. And honestly, the simple combination of kosher salt fresh cracked pepper, and olive oil is perfect. And then you put the pan right on the floor of a very hot oven for about 20 to 30 minutes to crisp the potatoes, and then you flip them once. You're left with pillowy on the inside, crisp on the outside potatoes, ready to be enjoyed respectably with a fork and knife, or my personal preference, even just going rogue and using your hands. I love them, my husband loves them, and you really can't go wrong when you pair these little guys with a delicious, juicy steak. Hello, Food52 community. Uh, I'm Umaima. I'm a Tunisian living in France. And I wanted to talk about batata hara. It literally translates to spicy or spiced potatoes. The way it's usually served is part of a medze platter with baba ghanoush, mahamara, hummus, pita bread, or many other variants. And personally, how I love to make it is by cutting the potatoes into small, even cubes, then boiling them, then frying them. While they're frying, I prepare the oil mixture. I start by sautéing a red onion or a shallot, adding a lot of crushed garlic, uh, then adding caraway seeds, cumin seeds, coriander powder, turmeric, salt and pepper. Once it's fragrant, I toss the fried potatoes into the oil mixture, add chopped coriander and or parsley. Towards the end, I add a fair amount of lemon juice because it's usually quite lemony and maybe some dried mint depending on, on the mood. It's really easy to put together, quite comforting and it really feels like home to me and I think it would be a lovely thing to try for every potato lover, especially during these trying times. Thanks for listening and for sending in your stories. This week, I'd love your thoughts on one more thing. I've been working on a Genius Beginners cookbook for the past couple years, and there are a few more recipes that I'm still hunting. 20 to be exact. Everything from huevos rancheros to your go-to sides that are just one step more thought out than buttering a bag of frozen peas. The full list is on Food52, along with Lara's recipe, and there's still time to make a big impact on the final book, so I really appreciate your help. Our show was put together by Coral Lee, Emily Hanhan, and me, Kristen McGlory. If you like the Genius Recipe Tapes, take a minute to rate and review us. It really helps. See you next time.